0: This evening, we conclude our Acts Bible study. We cover chapter 27 and chapter 28. But as we even begin this conclusion, I want to go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which was the theme verse of the entirety of the Acts of the Apostles. The resurrected Jesus said to the disciples before he pours forth his Spirit on Pentecost, For you will shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, church, the resurrected Lord is saying, You will begin being my witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. Then it will go broader to Judea and then even Samaritans and then all the way to the remotest part of the earth. As we've gone through the Acts of the Apostles, we have pointed out how, in fact, this is the paradigm verse for the entirety of the book and the spring of the gospel in the Acts of the Apostles has gone just that way. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and tonight we reach Rome In some ways, the remotest part of the earth, the capital city of the empire. You remember in chapter 26 that we left with Paul having appealed to Caesar. Festus is the new governor. Agrippa II hears Paul and says if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he might be set free. But he had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he would go. Also remember that the Lord had told Paul in a vision that he would preach the gospel in the capital of the empire just as he had in Jerusalem. Well, let's pick up in chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, heading to Rome, because he's appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some of his other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So this is probably a privately owned vessel, and they would pay for the prisoners to be taken as passengers along with some cargo as they're making their way to Rome. We learn that the centurion is from the Augustan cohort, and his name is Julius. Julius. They embark in verse 2 on Adramedium's ship, which was about to set sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. They put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day, they go to Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration. There at Sidon, Julius allowed Paul to go and meet with other Christians and to be encouraged along the way. He received some care. And from there they set out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, verse four, because the winds were contrary. When they had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. And there a centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, with difficulty we arrived at Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed on the shelter of Crete, of Salmeni. With difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lathia. So they're having some trouble. Some rough seas, some rough waters. It's with difficulty that they sail and now they're at fair havens and they must decide, will they go on further on the journey to Rome or will they stay there for the winter on the island? What will they do? They begin to have a conference and speak about what they should do. Look at verse 9. And when considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, even... Since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And Paul said to the men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than he was by what was being said by Paul. And because harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, and somehow they should reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. There wasn't a good port to spend the winter there, so the majority go against the wisdom and the advice of the apostle Paul, and they set sail hoping to find another harbor. Verse 13, there's a moderate south wind that comes up. They suppose they gained their purpose they weighed the anchor and began sailing on Crete, close inshore. But before very long, they're rushed down from the land of violent wind called a Uroquillo. It caught them off guard. All of a sudden, the wind arrives. The ships caught in it. They couldn't face the wind. They gave way to it, meaning they took down the sail. They were just driven along by the wind, hoping for the best. They're running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, and they're scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. And after they had hoisted up, they use supporting cables undergirding the ship. They actually wrap ropes beneath the belly of the ship, trying to hold it together. They're afraid they'll run ground at Africa. They let down the anchor, and they try to slow the beating of the wind as it drives them along. Things get so rough in verse 18. They decide they're just going to jettison or toss over the cargo. The third day, they begin to throw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. They had been, verse 21, a long time without food. Who could eat in such conditions of the boat? being tossed back and forth. Paul stands up in their midst and says, men, you ought to have followed my advice. I told you not to set sail from the island of Crete. And now you're going to encourage the damage and loss. And yet, verse 22, keep courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong And whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God, it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we're going to run aground on a certain island. Now it's hard to blame the centurion for listening to the advice of the pilot and the captain of the ship or the owner of the ship over a Pharisee Paul an expert in the things of Jewish law and yet now they see that Paul has a connection to almighty powers he has a vision the vision says you're going to run aground on an island you're going to lose the cargo but you're not going to lose the men For you yourself Paul must stand before Caesar keep up the courage Verse 27, but when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings, they found it to be twenty fathoms, and little further, they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. And fearing they might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But the sailors, verse 30, do an odd thing. The ones who know how to run the ship decide they're going to escape from the ship in the lifeboat. Well, as they're about to let the lifeboat down in the sea, Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers that they have to stop the men who are trying to escape on the boat. Unless these men remain in the ship, verse 31, you yourselves cannot be saved. The soldiers then cut away the ropes. Now they're listening to Paul and not the sailors. And let the lifeboat fall away. Everything was now in the hands of Paul, and more specifically, in the hands of Paul's God. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day, and you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having nothing to eat. Therefore, take some food. For it is for your preservation. Not a hair on any of your heads will perish. Not a single hair on your head will be a casualty of our wreck. Well, they ate, verse 38. They began then to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. They ate all they could, and now they realize they must get rid of the extra weight. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it as far as they could, verse 39. And they cast off the anchors, and they left them in the sea. At the same time, they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the sail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground and began the prowl struck and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up from the force of the waves. Now in verse 42, the soldiers decide they have to kill all the prisoners. How can you keep track of a prisoner in a shipwreck? I mean, everybody overboard, everybody grab a plank, everybody's kind of kicking their way to the shore. And so the soldiers being responsible with their own lives and keeping account of the prisoners, then, well, they, they plan to make an escape. They're afraid the prisoners will get away. So they decide just to kill all the prisoners But the centurion, look at verse 43, wants Paul to be safe. He kept the soldiers from killing the prisoners and commanded everybody who can jump, jump, swim, get to land. The rest of you grab a plank and they make their way, all of them safely, to land. God had delivered them. Paul had had a vision, and Paul's God, the God whom he served, said, despite the loss of the cargo, despite the loss of the ship, that all the men will be saved and not a hair on their head will be damaged. The sailors have tried to escape, and Paul has commanded them to stay on the, the ship. Now we have a prisoner who's in charge. The centurion won't allow the prisoners to be killed because he wants to protect the apostle Paul, the one whose vice advice he should have followed in the beginning. Because God says, you must appeal, appear before Caesar. Your appeal and your appearance before Caesar must surely occur. Verse 28, they make it to an island called Malta. Now the natives of the island They show kindness, not only to Paul, but to all who are on the ship. They start a fire to warm up those who've been in the cold water from the shipwreck. And as they're gathering, verse 3, bundles of sticks, Paul is helping out, trying to throw more dead wood on the fire, and a viper, a serpent, a snake, bites him. Now, apparently, this particular viper was of the most deadly sort, and the natives of the island began to say themselves, well, look at that, what a guilty man he must be. They were speaking of something like karma. He escaped the shipwreck, but he didn't escape the snake. Justice has come against this man. Now, they are just watching Paul. They know he's about to swell. They realize that it won't be long until he drops over dead. They sit and watch, waiting for the man. They think Paul must surely be a murderer for indeed justice of God has been found in the serpent. However, look at verse five. He shakes the creature off into the fire and miracle of miracles, Paul suffers no harm. Now, you might could say Paul was a murderer in his persecution against Christians. He certainly partook in Stephen's stoning. So that's not completely wrong. But God had forgiven him through his experience of the resurrected Jesus. Verse 6, they just sit and wait for him to swell up and fall dead. They wait a long time. And now instead of saying that he's a murderer, by the end of verse 6, they're saying, Paul must surely be a god. Who is this that can be bitten by the serpent and not get sick? He must be a god. No one survives the bite from that snake. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to a leading man on the island named Publius, who welcomed and entertained us courteously three days. Now, Publius' father was affected with fever and dysentery, And Paul went in in verse 8, and Paul prayed for him, and Paul healed him. So not only had they seen the apostle bitten by a poisonous viper and survive, now he has the very power to heal the sick. We knew that before, but the natives of the island called Malta had never seen anything like that before. The end of verse 8, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Verse 9, all the people with all the diseases were being brought to Paul and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect and we were setting sail. They supplied us with all we needed. Now you can imagine if Paul had influence over the fellow passengers or the centurion before or the captain, you can imagine how much influence he had now, bitten by a viper and did not die, healing the father of their host on the island. And then all on the island who were sick were brought to him and he was able to heal them from whatever was ailing them. Therefore, verse 10, because of Paul, In response to the miracles he performed on behalf of their many sick, they provide them as they load a new ship with all the food that they will need for the journey, they will be able to make the trip now all the way to Rome. Well, verse 11, at the end of the three months we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered there at the island. The winter ships couldn't sail. They had to find a a port and stay, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we'd put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we sailed around, arrived at Regium, and a day later in South, the wind sprang up on the second day, and we came to Putoloi. We found some brethren, who were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. Now, this image here in verse 15 is that there are believers there. They hear about the arrival of Paul. They come as far as from the market of Apius and three ends to meet us. And when Paul saw them, they, he thanked God and took courage. So they come out to Paul and they usher him in. It is the same kind of image and the exact same language that is used when Christ returns that folks will go out, believers will go out and meet him and come in ushering him in to his victory as a resurrected Christ who's making his return. They entered Rome and Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier guarding him. It was, happened after three days, he called together those who were the leading men, the Jews. Now, isn't it interesting, after Paul has gone through all that he's gone through with the Jewish leadership, after they have accused him, after they've taken him to their own trials and then tried him before every stage of the Roman legal system, that when Paul gets to Rome, the first one's that he wants to convince that Jesus is the, is the Christ, that this rabbi is the one, the anointed one of God. He himself sins, verse 17, and he asked for the Jews. When they come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I'd done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel." No matter all that Paul had gone through, he wanted the Jews to realize that the only hope that Israel had was in receiving her Messiah and receiving Jesus, once crucified and now resurrected. That all that had happened to Jesus had been predicted by the prophets, had been written in the Torah, that all of it was according to their own scripture, their own prophets. And they said to him, We've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come in, reported, or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us, it is spoken against everywhere. They had heard about the Christians, the followers of the way, those who were following Jesus as the Christ. They wanted to hear Paul firsthand themselves. When they had set a day for him, they came at his logic in large numbers and he was explained to them, solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. I think that's interesting language there. Do you remember when Jesus arrived that his whole message could be summarized by the words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not so much used in regard to Paul's preaching or Peter's preaching, this language of the kingdom of God, but now Luke describes that they are testifying concerning the very thing about which Jesus has preached, testifying about the kingdom of God. And he tried to persuade them concerning Jesus. For look at verse 23 from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening, Paul did what Paul did. When he arrived in the city, when he was a free man, he first went to the synagogue, and then he was booted from the synagogue. He went and preached to the Gentiles formed a church with Gentiles and God-fearers and a few Jews who believed. But even in Rome, in the capital city, he goes to the Jews first and they give him a hearing. And all day long, he tells them to look at the prophet Isaiah. He tells them to look at the writing of the Psalter, look at the writing of Moses. He shows them how it is all about Rabbi Jesus, this suffering servant who must die and rise again. Every time that Paul preaches, or Peter preaches, or Jesus preaches, there's a divided crowd. Look at verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Everyone who's ever heard the gospel falls on one side of that division, Which side are you on? Are you the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? Or are you one who refuses the message of the Christ? Everybody falls on one side of the divide or other, and I know how they landed on that day. The only question that matters this evening, maybe you're driving on the highway through Amarillo and you're hearing this message. Will you believe that Jesus is a Messiah? Will you believe that he's the Holy One of Israel? Others would not believe Verse 25, they did not agree with one another. They began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return. And I should heal them. In fact, what happens here at the end of the book is what has happened throughout the Acts of the Apostles. The Jews, the majority, refuse the message. Some believe, but the majority refuse. And therefore, verse 28 God has sent salvation to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And like always, a dispute emerges amongst the Jews, even as Paul is preaching. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. For two years, Prisoners had to pay their own rent. That's a novel idea, isn't it? They had to pay their own fare. He's in somewhat of loose quarters. People allowed to visit him. He welcomed all who came to him. So he could no longer go to preach the gospel. God brought people to him. And what's he preaching? Verse 31, preaching the kingdom. And what's he teaching? teaching Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you love the way it ends? with all openness, unhindered. The Acts of the Apostles begins by telling us that the Holy Spirit will come upon the church on the day of Pentecost, the rushing wind, the fiery tongues, men from all over the empire hear the message in their own language, our sermon this Sunday morning. And it ends in the same way, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely unhindered all openness unhindered now I get frustrated when I watch a movie and it leaves me hanging Luke left us hanging we want to know about the trial just like we got to read about him going before Felix and Festus or Agrippa II, we want to hear him make his speech upon his appeal. And we want to know, did he get out and make that extra missionary journey to Spain like he'd planned to do, being sent by the church of Rome? Tradition tells us that he did not. That most likely at the hands of Nero, his life was ended, perhaps beheaded. But God took him from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, preaching the gospel. The one that he met on the road to Damascus, the one who saw the bright light, the one who was the chief enemy of God's people, became the chief spokesman and writer in defense of the gospel of God. Two years, teaching the kingdom of God, persuading them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And most likely, Paul died as part of this appeal as Nero began to persecute the Christians in unprecedented ways. Paul's life is described as being a, going from being an enemy of God to being a soldier for God. How do we summarize our lives? Does our story end with us preaching the kingdom of God with us teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. You shall receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And starting in Jerusalem and then going out to Judea and then to Samaria and then all the way to Rome, you shall preach the gospel. Paul started the churches. He was a faithful witness. The one who was certain that Jesus was a blasphemer, claiming to be the Son of God, after he saw the resurrected Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, would give his very life to defend the very people he was once persecuting. How about you? Have you experienced the resurrected Jesus in such a way that you're willing to give your life, teaching and preaching his kingdom? Let us pray. Oh God, may we be used like Paul, and may we preach with all openness, unhindered. Amen.